So this morning we have a special guest bringing the word. Um, Tara Beth was up here, uh, what was it, about a month ago or six weeks ago or not too long ago. And, uh, you know, there's this movement going on around the globe, this rising revolution of people uh, discovering a Jesus-looking God who's raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And in this rising revolution, uh, one of the young voices that has really been standing out, a, a real prophetic, bold voice, has been Tara Beth Leach. Uh, she's the author of two books, uh, Embolden uh, and Radiant, the most recent one being Radiant, uh, How the Church Can Regain Her Credible Witness. I've read it. It's an incredible book. I encourage you all to, to get that. And so could we all give a warm Woodland Hills, I'd go and give you a Woodland Hills hug, but that's taboo still, I guess. Uh, but uh, give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Tara Beth Leach, so loud that she can hear it on this side of the screen. Come on, louder, louder, louder. <laughs> Come on, Tara Beth, bring it. Awesome. All right, God you. bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Greg, and good morning to the Woodland Hills community. It is a joy to be with you. It's been a couple months since I've been here, and as I mentioned last year when I was here, I am one of you. I have been one of one of your parishioners for years. I have been blessed and edified by the teachings and the pastoral leadership of this church, and so I am so thrilled, thrilled to be opening the word with you again today. And over the last couple of weeks, I have been wrestling with these passages of scripture that you've been saturating in right along with you. Like you, I have found these passages to be challenging. I have found them to be difficult. And I'm reminded that whenever I get into the Sermon on the Mount, I'm reminding just how challenging this vision is that Jesus gives us. Especially when we get into this section of scripture that we're in right now, known as the antitheses, where Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage and then drives it deeper or ups the ante or raises the bar by giving us the intent, the original intent behind the passage and giving us the fuller or deeper meaning or vision. And whenever we read passages like this, it sparks a lot of really important conversation as we saw last week because they're really difficult teachings. We wonder, is Jesus just using hyperbole? Is he just being extreme? Is he just trying to make a point? Does he really mean it? I mean, does Jesus really mean to pray for those who are persecuting you? I mean, does Jesus really mean to love your enemies? Does Jesus really mean don't get angry? Is that really what he meant? Because these teachings of Jesus within the Sermon on the Mount, as Scott McKnight often says, they're piercing. And when we hear them, we squirm, we get uncomfortable, and many, as a result, we, we attempt to tone it down because they're so hard and we wonder as we wrestle, how exactly did Jesus mean for this to come across? And so we're going to continue saturating in the same verses that we've been sitting in over the last couple weeks when Jesus makes this incredible, difficult, piercing declaration to not be angry. And then we're going to scroll down just a few more passages in verses 23 through 26 to see what Jesus means when he gives us a deeper picture. He shows us what it looks like when the rubber meets the road to root out all anger. But before we do that... What I want to do 
is I want to zoom out because it's really easy for us to look at these antitheses. It's really easy for us to look at passages like this, don't get angry, and turn it into a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. I come from a pious tradition, my background early on, and and in a pious tradition, we get really bent on these legalistic ideas. For me growing up, it was don't drink, don't chew, don't smoke, don't don't go with boys or girls who do. It was all about a list of right and wrongs and being holy before the Lord of do's and don'ts. And it's really easy for us to reduce this passage to that. Do you get angry? Or don't get angry. Don't do this. Don't do that. And we reduce it to a list of right and wrongs. But if we zoom out, we catch a vision for something so much greater and glorious and awesome and captivating than just a list of do's and don'ts. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to read first through verses 21 through 26. And before we open the word, let us pray. Lord, you are so good to us. Your grace is in abundance. Your mercy, endless your love unstoppable. And we thank you that out of your goodness, you meet all of us wherever we are. You speak to us in the valleys, you find us in the mountaintops. You pursue us to the margins and you find us there and you summon us home. And so Lord, I pray for for this entire community as they are leaning in this morning or whenever it is they're listening, wherever they are. We pray that out of your goodness that you would drench their minds, that they might understand, that you would open their ears, that they might hear, that you would open their eyes, that they might see, and that you would give us all a fuller, more robust, greater vision of what it is you are calling us to do and be in a weary world. May your name be lifted high. May you anoint our minds. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. We're going to scroll through verse 26, so you can either open your apps, or if you have your Bibles, or pull up Bible Gateway, or I believe we're also going to have it here on the screen for you as well. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together 
on your way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the very, very good, awesome word of the Lord, and I'm so thankful to be opening it with you today. So as I mentioned, this is a section of scripture couched within the Sermon on the Mount, a section of scripture known as the Antitheses, where Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage, and then he ups the ante by trying to give us in a a fuller vision or the intent behind the original passage. So he begins his first antithesis. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you to not get angry. And again, as I mentioned from the outset, we squirm when we hear these passages. They're hard. These teachings are hard, Lord, who can follow, they said. They are hard indeed. But as Scott McKnight often points out for us, these are teachings that still, at the end of the day, Jesus expects us to obey. Jesus expects us to follow, to listen, and to heed to the words of Jesus. As in Matthew 5, 17, we see Jesus placing himself at the center of the story as the ultimate authority that those then who live under the reign and rule of King Jesus are to live how Jesus declares. And so we ought to lean in and listen. And at the same time, we must also recognize that as difficult as these teachings are, and yes, we are to follow left to our own devices, it would be futile. That we must lean in and surrender ourselves and open ourselves up to the empowering presence of the Spirit that shapes and transforms hearts and minds and intentions and hearts. And so to give us a fuller vision of what Jesus is doing here and to help us understand that this is not just a list of legalistic right and wrongs, but Jesus is is creating this incredible, robust, powerful vision of what it means to be in a kingdom community. And we get a glimpse of this vision in verse 20. So we're going to back up just a few verses, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, for Jesus makes this really audacious claim. It's, it's a really profound claim, it's audacious, and at first glimpse, we're going to think, well, here we go, it's legalism again. But let's take a look. Jesus, Jesus says, for I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, hold on, Terabyte. I thought you said this wasn't legalism. (laughs) That sounds like legalism. You just said this wasn't legalistic. Jesus makes this claim that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa! So let's just sit on that word righteousness for a second, because what we'll discover is it's not legalistic, and Jesus is making an amazing, beautiful vision for us. This word righteousness is often misunderstood as a pious thing. Again, a list of do's and don'ts, avoid this and do that. However, 
what we discover when we read throughout the grand narrative of scripture is that righteousness is a highly relational term. Or another way to put it is it is a covenant term. Righteousness is another way of saying faithfulness to this relational covenant that we have been invited into. Charles Talbert, a New Testament scholar, notes that it is synonymous with this idea in the Old Testament of steadfast love or faithfulness. And so to be righteous before God is to be faithful to God. It's to be loyal to God, to live within the bounds of the covenant in this vertical relationship that we have been invited into. We see this in Jeremiah 31, 33, when it says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This covenant community then is to be a righteous community that they would worship Yahweh alone, that they would love God with everything, with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this idea of being in a righteous covenant community isn't just a vertical relationship between me and God, but it's between us and God and us and one another. In other words, it's not just about a holy me, but it's about a holy us. And so this righteousness then within this covenant community is, is to be lived out between, yes, us and God and us in one another. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament, that those who live in this righteous community, in this relational covenant community, they are not only to love God with everything, but they are to love their neighbors. They're not to slander one another. They're not to do evil to a neighbor. They are to care for the widow, the orphan. They are to care for the stranger. They are to not hurt their neighbor. They're not to take bribes. We, we see this played out in Psalm 15, verses 2 and 3, when it says this. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does, does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others. And so you can see this vision for righteousness within a covenant community. Is yes, God has given us this awesome, amazing, powerful, life-changing, earth-changing gift that we are invited into this covenant relationship that God is our God and we are God's people. And as God's people, we are to live out this covenant righteously by loving God and loving one another's. And so when Jesus then stands up and he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, he's not making a legalistic claim. But what he's calling is those who live under the reign and rule of King Jesus as God's kingdom community or as God's relational covenant people. He's declaring a radical commitment to God and to one another. That we would love God as Jesus declares in the greatest commandment when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the command of a righteous 
covenant community. And so as we dig further into this passage then, when, when Jesus makes this declaration that in, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, and then after that he goes into these six antitheses, there's another thing that we must recognize. As Jesus is speaking to an already but not yet kingdom community. And that is the reality in which we live in today. And what scholars call the already but not yet kingdom community. In other words, the already. Jesus makes this declaration. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Because of the faithfulness of King Jesus, the teachings, the journey to the cross, the, the, the resurrection, the ascension, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are living in the already that we are presently being redeemed, that we are presently being saved, that we are presently being shaped and formed into this kingdom community. That's the already. And we also live in the not yet. That is, someday... We can look forward to a world in Revelation chapter 21 of this future redeemed kingdom community that someday there will be a world of no more sorrow. Someday there will be a world of no more anger. Someday there will be a world of, of no more murder. Someday there will be a world of no more hate crimes. Someday there will be a world of no more racism. Someday there will be a world of no more division, strife, slander, bitterness, malice, discord. Someday we will join Christ in the resurrection and we will be free and fully free of these chains of anger that shackle us and have shackled us for far too long. Someday there will be a world of a fully redeemed kingdom community. And so we recognize that we, yes, we live in the already, that we are presently being redeemed, and that we wait for the not yet. And so as we live in this not yet, we recognize that we are still, as we are being presently rede being redeemed, there are parts of, about us that are incredibly broken. That as we live in the not yet, I recognize that I've hurt people. As we live in the not yet, I, I recognize that maybe you've hurt people. I've gotten angry. You've probably gotten angry too. I've sinned in my anger. Maybe you've sinned in your anger too. I've cursed those who've persecuted me. I bet you've cursed those too. I've lied. And probably you've lied too. And the reality is, as we live in this not yet world of so much pain and brokenness, some of us are walking around with so much anger and we just don't even know why. We're walking around with so much angst. We're walking around with so much frustration and, and we don't know where to take it. We don't know what to do with it. And some of it is rooted from real trauma, real pain, real oppression, and real hurt. I want to say, in a lot of ways, I, I get that. Your anger at times can seem understandable. We live in the not yet where hurt people hurt people. 
And maybe you've been hurt and you're feeling a lot of anger for that. But Jesus doesn't just teach this vision now of of don't get angry. And he doesn't say, well, (laughs) I'm just being extreme. It's just hyperbole. (laughs) Don't worry about it. We live in the night yet. Someday you won't have to deal with it. Just do what you can now. But Jesus is actually really serious about this. It's not just hyperbole. Yes, Jesus wants us to feel the weightiness of this call, and this call is to look to this future reality, a world of no more sorrow, a world of no more pain, a world of no more anger, and to open ourselves up to this future reality and to be on our knees in total and utter complete surrender to the spirit of the living God and to desperately surrender ourselves to the spirit of the living God and pray, Lord, impel me to the future and may that future impinge on the present. May that future reality be here now in my body, in my emotions, in my mind as it is in heaven. May that future reality of no more hate, of no more bitterness, of no more discord, of no more malice, of no more rage, of no more envy. May that burst into the present and transform my body, my mind, my soul, my emotions here now as it is in heaven. So we don't just look to that future reality and say, well, that's someday. Beam me up one day, Lord, and get me out of here. But it's here now. And while this is a call for us to live, It's impossible and utterly futile for us to do it in our own power. So on one end, it's it's not just extreme language that Jesus is using here. Jesus is giving us a vision to live out a foretaste of the future on earth as it is in heaven. But we also must recognize that it cannot, it will not, And it won't happen without the transforming, redeeming, empowering presence of the Spirit to impel us and propel us and empower us and embolden us into that future reality. That when we are being propelled into that future reality and the power of the Holy Spirit that the world would see. And they'd say, I think I just saw heaven. I just tasted the future. And so Jesus then, in giving us this this fuller vision of a righteous community, so so just to back up and review here, it's not just about avoiding anger, but Jesus is giving us this vision of this, this righteous community, that righteousness is lived out with God and righteousness is lived out with one another in the ways that we love God and in the ways that we love one another. And so he gives us now a fuller vision of what this looks like in verses 23 through 26. Let's take a look. Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. 
Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Wow, that sounds extreme. Wow, that sounds incredibly inconvenient. Jesus not only wants us to root out all anger, but now he says, if you are on your way to Jerusalem to go and make a gift at the altar, which by the way would have been for many a journey which would have lasted several days. Jesus says, you might get there and at the very last minute all of a sudden realize that there, there's some reconciliation that needs to happen. Don't even lay your gift at the altar, but instead march back home and seek reconciliation. And then again, this, this second example, he says, if you have a legal adversary and, and you're headed to court, don't go through the humil- humiliation. Don't humiliate them. Don't humiliate yourself. But instead, make things right in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be reconciled on earth as it is in heaven. Allow that future to break forth into the present. Don't let the courts create that false idea of reconciliation, but do it now and be a foretaste of the future. And we see just how inconvenient and how hard these teachings really are. Make a several-day journey and you get there, and you realize, oh, I have some reconciliation to do, and now march back home. But again, Jesus is giving us this vision of righteousness. Righteousness isn't just vertical, disconnected from the horizontal. In other words, righteousness isn't just about me being right with God, but I must also be right with my neighbor. I must also be right with my brother and my sister and my friend and my coworker. That as this covenant community that God is our God and we are his people, now under the reign and rule of King Jesus, we do whatever we can to live out this righteousness by making things right with people all the time, everywhere we go. How inconvenient. I mean, it's so much like reconciliation. There's so much important discussion about reconciliation today. And I will be the first to tell you that I love talking about reconciliation and the first to tell you that it's so much harder than to preach. Us preachers, we love to talk about reconciliation. But at the end of the day, it's hard work. It's inconvenient. We have to go out of our way. We have to admit things about ourselves that we don't like. We have to open up our eyes to blind spots. We have to see things about ourselves that we, we don't want to see. We have to say things. We have to, say the, we have to oftentimes be the first to say that we are wrong. We have to humble ourselves. Reconciliation is really great until we do it. And then it's hard work. It's inconvenient. So again, is Jesus really being serious about this inconvenient style of reconciliation or is this just hyperbole? I love the way Scott McKnight puts it. He says, in the future kingdom of God, when all is consummated and when heaven comes to earth, anger will vanish because loving fellowship will flourish. Again, imagine that future reality. The prohibition of anger here is not so much hyperbolic. Listen to this as it is a foretaste of kingdom realities. When we seek out reconciliation, when we root out anger, and we live out this righteous community vision, 
we are giving the world a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And so here's what we must recognize then about reconciliation as we see in this passage. Reconciliation doesn't just happen, but it must be radically pursued. It is profoundly inconvenient. It is seemingly impossible. And left to our own devices, again, it will go south. We must humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and in one another and open ourselves up and surrender to the empowering presence of the Spirit that will propel these decaying bodies and minds and emotions of ours that aren't always behaving the ways that we want and ways that we aren't proud of and will begin to to break away that crud within our own hearts and open up our eyes and propel us to mutual submitting to one another that we would give the world a foretaste of these realities. And for me, this is, for me, this is opening myself up daily to the spirit of the living God, to God's streams of mercy, and to God's grace. So sorry, a massive bug just flew right in front of my eyes, and I almost just fainted right here on the platform. (laughs) But for me, it is a daily opening myself up to God's streams of mercy and grace. See, in my early 20s, I had a lot of anger in my life. And I, of course, had it as a teenager, but you know, as a teenager, you chalk it up to hormones and being a teenager. But in my 20s and then in my early 30s, things really started to come to a head. And I I, I can remember when I was a pastor out in Southern California, I preached this sermon series called The Politics of Jesus, one that I thought would not be controversial. And it was profoundly controversial, and hundreds of people left the church. And I remember pursuing one of the families, seeking reconciliation. I wanted to be reconciled to them. And I, I, I went to their home and I sat in their family room and the, and the couple sat in front of the front door and with, with me, I was, I was looking towards the front door just eventually during the conversation looking for an escape route. Because we sat there for an hour and for an hour they had every single word and they raked me over the coals. They made assumptions about me they made assumptions about my family. They made assumptions about my, my politics. They made assumptions about my ideology. They, they made assumptions about my personal life based off of my preaching. And it was one of the most painful conversations that I've ever had with a congregate. And I remember... good. We're good. Okay. We're just going to pause here. <laughs> Kill that bug. Yeah, where is it? Do we have a handheld? Maybe. Here, I can get this. Oh my goodness. Okay, it is a massive wasp and we have killed it. <laughs> we have killed it. Okay. Okay. All right, we're good. We're going to continue. This is real life, folks. I think I got it. Yep. Oh, no, I think it fell off. Okay. Okay. All right. Test, 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 test. Okay, here we go. This is real life, folks. I just killed a wasp. I am a warrior woman. I am a warrior woman. The wasp, <laughs> the 
wasp flare. My husband, if he's watching, he would be so incredibly proud of me right now because he is the first to tell you that I have a serious phobia of bugs. And so I just lived out my worst nightmare right here, right now, before you. So we're going to pick right up. So here we go. So I was standing here and I was talking with this family thinking, this is so hard. And I remember everything came to a head with my anger when I got into the car and I began to pull away. And I pulled just a block down the street and I just began to rage in my car. I was there alone in my car and I began to pound the steering wheel in anger. I began to scream. I began to cry. I began to say things about them. I began to say things about the church. I began to say really, really hurtful things. And I remember thinking as I pulled away, okay, something is really wrong. I have a lot of hurt, and I have a lot of anger that needs to be dealt with. And so in 2016, I entered into therapy with a Christian therapist who is a pastor, who is a theologian, and who is a therapist. And we began to work through my life story. And before 2016, I would have told you that I had a pretty good life. And through the long haul and the long work of therapy, we began this process of rooting out anger by pulling back the curtains of my story and discovering that I had trauma in my life and discovering that I had a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And what my therapist would have told me is those emotions in my car that day when I was slamming on the steering wheel and I was weeping, she would have said, those are ancient emotions. And through daily opening myself up to the healing power and the healing presence of the Spirit, God has been rooting out that anger through the long haul work of therapy and opening myself up to God's streams of mercy and of grace. You see, reconciliation and healing and rooting out anger, it doesn't just happen. But it's the long road, the long road to obedience, the long road of healing. And some of you are walking around with so much anger. Some of you are walking around with with so much rage. And this vision that Jesus gives us is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly challenging. It's hard. And this invitation for us is to, yes, give the world a foretaste of the future, and it's also to open ourselves up to the healing work of Jesus. And the gifts are in abundance. The gifts are exponential. And something we must also recognize about this this long work of, of rooting out anger of this long work, this long road of reconciliation is it often takes a community and it takes even sometimes decades. As we know in the story of Rwanda, in the story of Rwanda, we we see this just horrible, awful tragedy between the the Tutsi and the Hutus. The Tutsis were were where the Tutsis suffered a a genocide somewhere north of 600,000 to a million people after Rwanda had been colonized more than once, by the way. And in the process of them being colonized, 
They were pitted up against one another. The Hutus and the Tutsis were pitted up against one another. They were formed to hate one another. They were formed to abhor one another. They were formed to be divided against one another in the process of colonization. And this all came to a head in the 90s when somewhere 600,000 to a million people died in the Rwandan genocide. And about a year and a half ago, I had the great privilege of traveling to Rwanda with a group of American pastors. And we went there to go and submit ourselves to the pastors of the churches in Rwanda to learn from them how after such a massive, horrible, tragic genocide, how people could even seek reconciliation. And they took us to different communities and we heard testimonies and we heard stories and some of the stories were so raw and some of the stories were just absolutely so unreal. I remember sitting in a room and listening to one young woman's story where she lived in hiding for weeks. She watched family members be slaughtered as she hid. And she shared her story to her path of forgiveness and even reconciliation. And it was still so fresh It was still so raw that at times she could hardly get words out. She couldn't breathe. At one time she even left the room and had to come back. And we as pastors, we weren't weren't sure what to do. And what was so apparent is this reconciliation and healing that has been happening in the country of Rwanda and in many ways led by the church and led by the pastors happened in the power of the Spirit and happened in community. We traveled to intentional communities that were reconciliation communities where they put Hutus and Tutsis together living in one neighborhood and they began the long path to healing and reconciliation. And that didn't just happen in a silo, but it happened in community and the healing and redeeming power of the Spirit. You see, this vision that Jesus gives us when the rubber meets the road at the end of the day of this righteous community is really hard work. And that's why we must open ourselves up within this righteous community to the spirit of the living God and receive the redeeming work of the spirit, the healing work of the spirit. And we must also open ourselves up to one another to help another along in this road to healing and reconciliation. Perhaps it's not just about giving, but also about receiving. As Charles Talbert puts it, he says, one may say that for Matthew, living with a surpassing righteousness means living faithfully within a covenant relationship that encompasses both vertical and horizontal dimensions and is only possible if such a life is divinely enabled. Left to our own resources, we cannot be faithful. So living justly is as much a matter of receiving as it is giving. Living out this righteous community is as much as receiving the grace of God as it is giving the grace towards another. Let us pray. Lord, this is hard. Who can follow? 
the gate is narrow. And so, Lord, we collectively open ourselves up to you towards your vision of a righteous and holy community. We open up ourselves to your transforming and your healing grace. And Lord, we pray that you would propel us to live out the foretaste of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, it was a joy to be with you today, and I now have a story to tell you, to tell about a wasp that attacked me that one time I was preaching, and you get to say that you were the first to see it. Well, again, these are, these are tough teachings, and some of you might still have questions, and so the pastors at Woodland Hills, they want to work with you through this. And so there are Zoom prayer rooms where pastors and church leaders will be there to walk with you, to pray with you, and also the, the very fun MuseCast, which happens on Tuesday afternoons. And then, of course, make sure you do sign up and get involved with the gathering group so that way you can process through your questions and your wrestling throughout this sermon. And so, friends, it was a true joy to be with you on this beautiful day. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and turn his face towards you and give you peace. And the most powerful name of our triune God, God who created the heavens and the earth, God who laid down his life, and God the Spirit who will propel us to righteousness today. Amen.